Hello and welcome to the Curator on Monocle Radio. I am Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, if it looks like a bird and flies like a bird, then it might be a drone. We'll hear how our feathered friends are taking on a new role after death. I think a few years ago, I think it was something like a bald eagle in America had a go at a drone and knocked it out of the sky. They're obviously going to be very wary of it. Plus, we'll hear from an up-and-coming musician from Bangladesh whose dreamy pop ballads have made him a hit at home and further afield. I remember one time in my high school in Bangladesh, like really, really early, I made this one song and they played it during our sports day. I realized that I have the power to make people dance and to make people feel something and that was really cool and that was when I was really young. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. We begin today's show in Milan, where the Monocle team pitched up this week to cover the world's largest furniture trade fair, the Salone del Mobile. Reporting from our stall and pop-up radio studio in the House of Switzerland, the team were happy to welcome the CEO of the Swiss furniture company, USM. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, asked Alexander Scherer how USM is navigating manufacturing challenges. I think the material prices, that's a bit worldwide. I think the energy prices, that was really what was hurting us the most. I think they're a bit local to Europe because Europe has no own energy sources. So everything, especially in Germany, but Switzerland is very linked to Germany, used to come from Russia and, uh, well, the Middle East. Uh, whereas, of course, for this, China or the US, they're a bit more independent of foreign imports of energy and I think that was the most critical part. Uh, it also led to some inflation in Switzerland but not as bad as in the other European countries actually. And and, and the knock-on then from a manufacturing point of view because also the other side of this is we hear about the talent issues and and the erosion, the evaporation of, of people to go and do jobs. Uh, how do you still keep this attractive that people want to come into a factory in, of course, high-wage Switzerland to make things with their hands, even though, of course, you're, of course, very automated in many ways at the same time. I remember when I was in gymnasium high school, you know, I sometimes went to work in the factory and what you had to do is just press a button with two fingers or so and, and the machine was working. But now I think uh, with these uh, installations we have, we actually need very skilled people in the factory. So. At the same time, also the job got more interesting, obviously. But it's true, it's not so easy to find uh, skilled labor, well, everywhere in the world, also in Switzerland. Even though we have this uh, dual system in Switzerland where not everybody really goes, has to go to university to be successful. That was the USM CEO Alexander Scherer speaking to Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, at Salone del Mobile. The city also played host to Milan Design Week. Monaco's Grace Cholton caught up with the Argentinian industrial designer Christian Mohadet and Francesca Pergamo, director of Laura Piana's Interiors Division, to discuss their collaboration on a new furniture collection and an installation called Apacheta. The concept of Apacheta is to say thanks 
to the Pachamama, the Mother Earth, to give all this um, beautiful landscape materials, the natural and beautiful places that we have in this world. Also, Apacheta is about uh, the construction to build something strong. It's about collaboration. I thought that Christian would have been perfect to uh, give the right interpretation in the design world of Loro Piana because uh, he loves nature, but he is also very much interested in looking after uh, craft and uh, way of working that's uh, almost about to disappear. So he has a mission, and I think this mission is the same mission that Loro Piana has in looking after materials and sources that are about to be extinct. I was really struck walking in as well, talking about materials, by the smell of the beeswax, and it's so beautiful. Um, can you tell me about the materials, but also maybe how you respected the Laura Piana aesthetic when you were creating these furniture pieces? In the collection, the inspiration was a different landscape I created in my mind, and the, also the textures of the textile, also the, the texture of the, of the wood, the contrast with the ceramic also for to interpret the water and different colors of also the, the red one is about the, one of the more beautiful lakes we have in Catamarca and my province where I, I born. The name is Ojo de Campo. The light blue is about the classic lakes or the color of the glacier in the south. Uh, everything is talk about this natural landscape. The idea was to create not just a piece of furniture, was to create a piece of landscape to introduce it in your home, to live and to discover every part and to be in contact with the texture of the material, to touch. That is, uh, was the main concept. The idea was to create this uh, place like a very intimate, very unique. We are all the time in running and contact with the phone and we are in contact but all the time we are disconnected of the real world, no? I think that also that is an invitation to be in contact and say we are here because we have a planet, because we must take care of about the planet, the natural landscapes. There's a real sense of peace when you walk in because of the atmos and the smell. It's, it's so lovely. Are you going to miss it when it goes down on Sunday? Uh, yeah, definitely. We will. We will. Again, it's part of the sensorial experience that the company is always trying to, to bring in anything, in anything we do. Christian was pointing out at the beginning, Apachetas is a traveling process also and we also were able to create like a, a traveling path to the visitors of design week from our stores up to here and i think there was another step that we were able to make because uh, these apachetas towers have been spread out a little bit around the city the poetry stays in the traveling concept which is also part of loropiana loropiana is a global company not just because we have stores everywhere, we have clients everywhere, but, but because we source from everywhere. I think that's uh, the travel and the global concept. It's part of our route. And you can hear more from Salone del Mobile and Milan Design Week on the latest edition of Monocle on Design. From design to architecture now, as we hear a highlight from this week's edition of Tall Stories, Monaco's Hannah Lucinda Smith admires a beautiful piece of telecommunications infrastructure in the hills of Istanbul. 
I am standing at the very top of Istanbul, as close to the heavens as you can get. The viewing platform of the Jamnaja television tower stands 587 meters above sea level, towering over the megacity as a monument to modernity and power. On a grey afternoon, a stream of Russian and Chinese tourists and a few Turks rotate around the viewing tower, taking selfies or posing against a huge backdrop screen that shows different aspects of the tower. You can have your picture taken next to a model of it and then get it printed on a stamp. You can pay extra to enter the ground-level cinema where you watch a film that takes you flying over Istanbul. But it is all synthetic next to the real thing. I look out over Istanbul beneath me. The city is textured and three-dimensional, a moving mosaic that sprawls across cone-shaped hills rising from the green waters of the Bosphorus. Clusters of new skyscrapers sprout like fast-growing weeds amid a sprawl of dun-coloured apartment blocks. There are few green places, little open space beside the water, and in places the pollution hangs yellow. On the ground, Istanbul feels like a leveller, with its crowds, its chaos and its filth. But from here I can see how the city is divided, how behind high walls the rich are living with gardens and swimming pools, while the poor are crammed into concrete ghettos between highways. Jamnager is the tallest television tower in Europe, capable of broadcasting on a hundred frequencies simultaneously. It's perfectly positioned on top of a hill, so that it rises before you between the two suspension towers at the end of the Bosphorus Bridge as you cross continents from Europe to Asia. From the ground to the tip of its long antenna, it reaches 369 metres in height. At night, its bulbous upper levels are lit up with the Turkish flag, and no matter where you are in Istanbul, it's never far from view. The tower dominates the view from my friend's snug rooftop terrace, three miles away on the Asian side of Istanbul. It looms on the skyline from another friend's balcony, on the European side of the city, four miles in the other direction. On the days when a thick, sultry mist descends from the Bosphorus, its antenna is still visible above, a spear poking up through the clouds. This is no rotating disc on a spoke, like the retro television towers of Prague, Berlin and Toronto. The Jamnager Tower curves up from its base like a tan wave, with a soft symmetry that would be soothing if it weren't on a gargantuan scale. But the tower's size is the point, because bigger is better is the common principle of Turkish architecture in the era of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The new Istanbul airport's biggest in the world, the thousand-room palace he constructed for himself in Ankara, the huge hospitals, roads and tunnels, all of them built on state borrowing. Buyuk Turkiye, big Turkey, Erdogan shouts to his supporters. Politics and ideologies leave marks on cities, none more so than in Erdogan's Istanbul. The president, a devout Muslim, is enthusiastic about mega-mosques, and over his 20 years in power, he's built them all over Turkey, in the Balkans and the Middle East. The biggest of them all is next door to the Jamlija Tower, on the next hilltop along. The Jamlija Mosque, opened in 2019, and vast enough to fit 63,000 worshippers at prayer time. 
The Jamnagar Television Tower replaced a hodgepodge of 32 old television and radio towers on the hill where the mosque now stands. Nothing there could be higher than its minarets, six of them. Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent was the last custodian of Istanbul to do that when he commissioned the Blue Mosque in the 17th century, and he was accused of impertinence. In Erdogan's Turkey 400 years on, it's often difficult to distinguish the sacred from the profane. Construction and religion are intertwined. State contracts are handed to loyal businessmen, and municipalities take backhanders. Religious associations have grown rich and multiplied. Erdogan's devout wife and daughters drip in designer labels. From the tower, I look down on the mosque, squat and deserted below. It's easy to feel omnipotent up here, above the minarets, above the call to prayer. But nobody is immortal, not Suleiman the Magnificent and not Erdogan. One day, he will no longer be leader of Turkey, but his additions to the skyline, they'll remain. A new set of trinkets bestowed by another leader determined to conquer Istanbul. Our thanks to Hannah Lucinda Smith for that report. Next up, we turn to the latest instalment of The Entrepreneurs. This week, the show's host, Tom Edwards, met Lucinda Chambers and Serena Hood, two former British Vogue editors who have turned their eye for style and passion for storytelling into the elegantly curated shopping platform, Glossary. Well, the family of brands lives together so happily with a team who curates them. But I think, you know, going back to the elevator pitch and why we started Collagerie, it was really to create the website that reflected how we dress and shop. And we feel that we're not so weird and wonderful. There's not hundreds and thousands and millions of women like us all over the world. And men. And men. We have a growing male audience who shop across all price points. So, you know, on any given day, you might find us in a dress. Today I'm wearing Jigsaw Times Collagerie collaboration that we've done together, a pair of Reformation boots. You know, we love a sort of high street find. And then also we will invest in a luxury item once or twice a year and keep that for years to come. You know, that was the starting point. And it was actually over a cup of coffee after Lucinda and I left Vogue where we were just talking about, you know, how we dress, how we shop. After Vogue, where would we now get all our information from? And we thought, let's start this. Let's start the website. And I think Serena's right. And I think, you know, we were in a such a privileged position at Vogue. You know, Serena and I worked across a desk from one another for over five years. And photographers came to us, brands came to us, products, all the information out there. We just had to be on kind of like receive mode. So we were just like, where would we go for all that information now? And we were like, well, if you can't find it and Serena's like half my age and I can't find it, then we've got to make it and build it and do it. Now tell me about that moment then. That's yeah. interesting because I guess there's been so many changes in terms of retail trends, how people shop, how they source their ideas, their inspiration, far less the products. And again, to the uninitiated, they may say, well, you know, you guys as veterans in, in one of the most storied brands in, in, in media, how did you have such a keen sense of that side of the business? Did you both have to then learn again from the ground up about retail and about sourcing products or, do, or did you feel you had Serena's sort of frowning at my question did you feel you actually you, you did you had already tapped into those that, that side of the business as well 
Well, I think it all started with storytelling. What we always did during our careers as editors, you know, at the magazine. And, you know, with collagery, it started with storytelling too. You know, we didn't start as an e-commerce platform. We started as a platform that tells stories through product. So I think from the beginning, that made collagery really stand out in the landscape. You know, today, three years on, the business has evolved, the business has grown, and the biggest spotlight in our site is all through our edits. So that was the starting point when it, from a sort of the business we wanted to create. But I think what's also really interesting, going back to, you know, the landscape and retail, is that there has been such a shift too with how brands want to connect with customers. And during my time at Vogue, I was working very closely with our commercial partners and our editorial teams. And what feels very exciting at Collagery is how we now have, you know, not only the customers shopping with us, but brands coming to us. Mm. And there's different ways we can partner with brands. And so that's been a very exciting, growing part of the business where we work with brands from high street stores to multi-retailers to luxury brands and now travel and beauty. So, you know, there's lots of scope still ahead. Well, that was intrigued me. And just if people browse uh, the site or if they follow you guys across different platforms, they'll see this beautiful uh, curated selection. But how, how do the partnerships actually work? Listen, because if you click on, I don't know, it, you might click on a Marc Jacobs handbag and you may go to Selfridges or you'll click on a pair of trousers and you might go to uh, Net Porter. What, what actually happens? How does that the business model work? Partnerships and working with the brands can be on many different levels. I mean, one thing we always have and consistently will have is discovery brands. So it's um, very much in different ways. So we'll have brands who we've discovered who we don't take any commission from. We have other brands that we do take a commission from. We have our own marketplace where we also take commission from. But you know, what's really interesting, and it goes back to what Serena was saying, is that, you know, the landscape has changed and a lot of brands come to us and they love collagerie and they see it works for them and they see that they sell a lot of product through us. But they also really want to know how we would work with them. I mean, for instance, like the Conran shop, which we're about to launch our second collection with, you know, will come to us and go, we love collagery. How can we work with you? And we can say, well, do you know what? I think if we designed a collection for you, that would do really, really well on your site because it's a talking point, something else. Say, somebody else, Jigsaw, will come to us and say, we love collagery. How can we work with you? It's very creative in the way that we do work with brands. And it can look like all sorts of different things depending on who that person is and what their brand is and and what they feel is lacking in their brand and what you know what story they want to tell and how we can enhance that I love the idea of this particular chemistry with different brands. We we also are going to feature an interview with Baum and Febgarten with an example like that what what are the things that you look for when when do you know Serena that this is a good fit and this is storytelling that reflects shared values I think that there is often an emotional connection you form with the brand. When it comes to, you know, how we curate, it always is about sharing what we love. I personally, I um, tend to wear a lot of dresses, as anyone who knows me, especially at home and in the office knows. And I, I love with collagery how we're able to fall in love with brands, whether it's a Danish brand like Baum and Fergarten or a brand in the U.S. called Doen, which I remember discovering this years ago at British Vogue, and it's now a household name. So it is exciting to be able to share these incredible designers all over the world with our community, which is growing day by day. And being editors and being curators now at Collagerie, it's all about how we can deliver the best product out there. 
you know, now we have also, you know, a lot more groundwork in terms of who our customer is, categories that do well for us, price points that do well for us. And, you know, I think it's always about, you know, how when you're looking through a collection, you can select, edit, emotionally engage, and then we bring that to our world. And it's actually putting it in a different context. I think that is really what connects our customers to the brands. It might be a brand they know about, but they haven't looked at in a while. Or sometimes feedback we get is, I'm not going to shop from our brand until I see what Collagerie's picked. And I think that has been one of the biggest endorsements of all. That must make you so proud to be one of these sort of arbiters that people uh, people look to. What about aesthetics? Because you talked already about the sort of curation process. There's a bit of maximalism, maybe, certainly maybe anti-minimalism, a real onus on getting people to maybe be more expressive Lucinda is that I mean I don't know give give us a shopping yes I mean I think when you're dressing we all have to get up every morning and get dressed and I think if that can be a engaging and uplifting experience and that's fantastic and we all have to sit on a sofa and plump a cushion up so I think you know what Serena and I really strive to do and and it was actually one of our biggest challenges we wanted to make the experience of collagery the most beautiful unanxiety inducing experience that you can have shopping and you know not everybody loves shopping so right from the get-go we had something called in the mood which is you know we would take something like a thin blue line and all the products that we would pick and all the inspiration would just be based on something very very almost super creative like like a, a wisp of an idea but it would engage it engages people who don't know what they're looking for until they find it. And then, you know, if you want a pair of black sandals, we've got black sandals as well. But I think from the very start, we wanted Collagerie to be visually incredibly exciting to look at. And, you know, we do a new piece of content every day and it's not overwhelming, which I think a lot of people find shopping very, very overwhelming. We didn't want the endless scroll. So you never felt that you had got to the end of it. So there were certain things that Serena and I really set out right from the start that visually it was everything you know this is our product so the website has to be beautiful it has to change it has to be not overwhelming it has to be a wonderful journey that you take we're sort of holding your hand and taking you shopping and that's got to be a beautiful experience and i think if there's one word too that we always go back to is joy you know how we can bring joy into shopping and i think you know a lot of that has been done through the design, the brand identity, and thinking about collagery as a brand in itself mm. from the very start. Still to come on the key race, we take to the skies to hear how taxidermy birds are being turned into drones. We meet an up-and-coming musician from Bangladesh, and we take a stroll through Melbourne's Ligon Street for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio, and I am Markus Hippip. Next up, we dive into a couple of highlights from our news shows. The Elon Musk fan community believes the SpaceX Starship is going to be the key to human interplanetary exploration. But it's just as well that Thursday's test flight was unmanned, because it blew up within minutes of blasting off from the company's Starbase facility in Texas. 
Mr. Musk and officials at his SpaceX company are insisting that an expensive fireworks display was always part of the plan. But is he just spinning as much as the Starship before its fiery demise? For more on this, Guy Delaunay was joined by David Whitehouse, space scientist and author. You know, all these protestations from SpaceX, oh yes, we really plan to blow up an extremely expensive uh, uh, um, that spaceship in a very public way. Uh, can we take those at face value? In, in, to a certain extent you can, because the, the motto of Elon Musk and SpaceX when they're developing something new is fail fast. This is a complicated rocket, there are many parts to it, and they really pushed it beyond its limits this week. They expected it to do far more than they could reasonably expect, hoping it might perform and do brilliantly. So although it failed after four minutes, and there are obviously several problems with that that flight in those four minutes, it was obvious from from the launch that it wasn't going well. They hope that they will have got enough information to put into the next launch to stop those things happening. And they see that as the best way to rapidly develop uh, a big rocket like this so that it works reasonably well. The the irony is, of course, the the Starship and the, the, the super heavy lifter were meant to be, you know, the, the key for them is that they're meant to be reusable, isn't it? I mean, you can't reuse things that they've blown up. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it's, it seems an odd way of, uh, of trying to get your proof of concept. Well, reusable eventually. I mean, this is, we must remember, this is a, a, a real push, this rocket. And as I said, they were pushing it far faster uh, in the hope that they could accelerate its development far faster than, than perhaps they should have done. Uh, you, you imagine that one of the world's largest rockets was the Saturn V, which took mm. the Apollo astronauts to the moon. And that only had a few rocket nozzles at the base of it. And they were incredibly powerful rocket engines. What Elon Musk has done is instead of having to build a really big rocket engine, has taken 33 smaller ones, clustered them together, and hopes they work in unison. And what happened yesterday is that they didn't. <laughs> so although it's a good design technique, he doesn't have to build and develop a new rocket technique, he's got to get it to work. And hopefully the data from yesterday will help him do that. But it's still, it's still a tall order. I mean, we're used to people from uh, Mr. Musk's circle using mottos like move fast and break things. Sure. And, and, and what it seems to me with SpaceX, the noise around them has been that you, you, you as, as in meaning the US government and NASA, shouldn't be looking to the traditional um, military industrial complex companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing for building mm-hmm. your next generation of rockets. You should be looking to us. And they're basically looking to, I mean, they've already got a very nice business putting satellites in or- orbit, have SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And they, they want, you know, human lifting to be their next, uh, their, their, their next uh, way of business. Is a lot of the noise that they've been making in this, you know, very rapid development just a way to try and get the government, the US government, to hold off the you know funding the traditional line of things that it would normally be doing well spacex has been a remarkable story over the past 20 years it started off literally a shed with nobody in it uh, with elon musk sleeping on the floor with some newly recruited engineers and they came within one launch of going bust but remarkably they've made everybody else look slow and they have, as you said, they have captured most of the market for launching satellites, small satellites, into Earth orbit. And NASA hopes that they can do this again because NASA's return to the moon 
with people in two and a half years' time is predicated on Elon Musk's starship working. So he's really against the clock in getting this system to work. And everybody is saying that, okay, it worked with your Falcon series of rockets, and that's fantastic, but this order of magnitude more powerful rocket, this faster development time, everybody's thinking that does the, as you say, fail fast, move quick, bravado of the past, which has worked. The big question everybody's asking, including NASA, is will it work this time? Is SpaceX the only option they've got? I thought that they did have the, the other option, which had been developed by Lockheed. They've, yes, they've got... Um, when SpaceX won the contract to build the lander to go on the moon, everybody was really rather surprised because uh, the alternative uh, from Jeff Bezos's group uh, was actually technically regarded as better. But NASA said that, no, Elon Musk has got a track record of delivering, mm. and um, and they left it with that. But after a short while, they then if you like, put a side bet on Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos, his group is also developing a lunar lander, which will probably land on the second or third landing missions. So NASA has hedged its bets a bit with SpaceX, but it still has confidence that, uh, sure, things blow up. Uh, but Falcon showed that things blow up mm -hmm. and then you learn how to how to operate the system. There's a lot going on with Elon Musk and this rocket. You could say that his reputation rests with Starship. And you think, you know, this time, we're used to a lot of bluster from Elon Musk and, you know, all of us Twitter users have just lost our blue sure. ticks, you know. We, we tend yeah. to take him very sceptically at, at, at best. But in this case, as you say, he's got a track record. Do you think that it's, it's, a, it's a good bet for, for NASA, a good bet for, for human interplanetary exploration in the long run? Well, that's what Elon Musk wants. He wants his starship as well as to land on the moon for NASA to spread humans out into, into the solar system. And uh, it's a bit of a tall order at the moment, but, you know, these are the dreams of billionaires. And for the first time in history, you could argue that billionaires have as much money as space agencies and can go their own way. Sure, it was a massive explosion yesterday and they will be very disappointed it didn't get a bit further. But NASA still bets on Elon Musk, and I think that it would be a foolish person to write him off. Next up, we turn to Tuesday's edition of The Globalist. A team at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology has been transforming taxidermy birds into drones with flapping wings to study flight. To unpack this monocles, Georgina Godwin was joined by Stephen Moss, one of Britain's leading nature writers and the author of 10 birds that changed the world. Georgina began by asking Stephen to explain how it works. Well, Georgina, what it's really about is the fact that if you put up a drone near birds, a flock of birds, and I tried this once with a flock of starlings in Somerset, they are naturally very suspicious about it. You know, this big mechanical thing flying around. And I think a few years ago, I think it was something like a bald eagle in America had a go at a drone and knocked it out of the sky. You know, they're, they're obviously going to be very wary of it. So what the researchers have done is they've taken the picture that shows a rather grotesque um, stuffed osprey, a bird, another bird of prey, and they have put a drone inside it and are hoping, and I have to say I'm slightly sceptical about this, that when they put what looks like a bird up with the birds, then the birds will be less suspicious and so they can study their behaviour. So could the taxidermy drone be the next bird to change the world? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, one of the possibilities for 10 birds that changed the world was a chapter on this exact thing, biotechnology. 
Um, and the idea is, you know, you look at a hummingbird, which can fly backwards and up and down and, and uses energy in a very efficient way. And you apply that, for example, to drones. Um, there are so many examples of, of not just birds, but, but other creatures doing it. The, the, the unfortunate thing, I couldn't find a sort of single bird that was really being used in this way. There were too many different birds, so I decided not to do that. But maybe if I do 10 more birds that change the world, then this story could be in there because it is a good story. Mm. So, I mean, it can teach us more about bird behaviour by being in amongst them. Can it also benefit the aviation industry? Absolutely. Yeah. The, these things are being applied. Um, as I say, you know, with drones, with helicopters, with any kind of aircraft of any size or shape, it's, it, the sort of issues they face are those that nature has already solved the problems for. Mm. So, for example, how to fly backwards, um, how, you know, how to fly upside down, which certain birds can do at times. Um, so the idea is people are, are these scientists are studying nature and trying to then see that what they're looking at is how, for example, how birds flock, how they avoid predators, which is obviously if you are if you are in the military aviation industry, you want to avoid being shot down. So how does a bird like a pigeon avoid a peregrine when the peregrine is much faster? Well, it's all about the way it flies, the way it can twist and turn in the air. So again, those sort of things are being applied all around the world. Mm. We can learn an awful lot from nature. You know, we tend to think of nature as this sort of nice, soft little thing that that is is like a bolt-on added extra in our lives. In fact, of course, it is absolutely central to everything we do. Do we need birds? Oh, do do we need birds? Absolutely. Um, this is the, one of the problems in, in modern society is we've become disconnected from nature. If, if you like, if there is a, a single message from 10 birds that change the world, it is when you mess with nature, when you try to use nature for your own benefit, it will bite back. And this is something that happens quite a lot in nature that, you know, if you if you if you ignore nature, for example, at the moment, you know, the emperor penguin, a bird that has adapted over centuries, millennia to live in Antarctica is struggling because of the climate crisis. But the emperor penguin is the classic, and I know it's a cliche, it is the classic canary in the coal mine. You know, when birds are in trouble, so are we. Over half Britain's birds have disappeared since I was 10 years old in 1970. Um, And that is because of the way we are treating our environment. And if we continue to treat the environment in that way, polluting our rivers, polluting our air, um, farming in a way that is not nature sensitive, we will suffer in the end. Just finally and very quickly, in your book, you tell us that the modern world is built on bird excrement. How so? Uh, Yes, this is guano from the guane cormorant. I won't use the word at this time in the morning, but you know what guano is, where um, basically the very first fertilisers in the middle of the 19th century were brought here from Peru and they were basically bird poo and they were spread on the fields and that changed the way farmers viewed um, the earth. They decided that they needed to add fertilizer to have higher yields and that has led to the modern farming methods which has also led to a crisis with nature. Um, and, and so, you know, over a hundred years ago, people were using these uh, these methods to 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 create fertilizer, which then they had to invent chemical fertilizers, which ended up with all the problems we have today. Nature writer Stephen Moss there in conversation with our own Georgina Godwin. 
Staying with Georgina now as we look back to last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers, Lydia Sandgren, the Swedish psychologist and author, spent 10 years writing her debut novel, which won the prestigious August Prize in 2020 and sold more than 100,000 copies. She joined Georgina to mark the publication in English of Collected Works, an epic family drama about a man dealing with the tragic aftermath of his wife's disappearance a decade ago. Here is a highlight. I have really been so excited to meet a writer and I have met hundreds and hundreds because this book is extraordinary. I've been pressing it into the hands of everybody I meet and they look at the the title and they go, Lydia Sangren, never heard of her. And I go, that's the point. It's a debut novel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's extraordinary that somebody who has never published before should come out with a book of this magnitude, it's 700 pages, but also of this depth and of this... I mean, I was absolutely captivated. I, I, I just couldn't put it down. So good to hear. Sometimes when I wrote it, I was wondering, what am I doing? Is this really reasonable, writing all this huge story? It took so, so much time. Uh, and I, um, there were many times when I was wondering, am I really sane <laughs> or am I doing something utterly crazy? Um, I think I should just explain a little bit yeah. what the book's about so that we can then go on to talk about yes. various aspects of it. It's really about ordinary people in your hometown of Gothenburg. And Martin is a publisher uh, and he, he lives with his wife, Cecilia. They have two children. Cecilia disappears. And then the book talks about that disappearance. We also meet their friends, Gustav, who's an artist. And we see also see through the eyes of Raquel, who is their daughter. But the really interesting thing about the book is the way it plays with time. And we'll come back to that in a moment, because time is an extremely important question here. It took you 10 years. And you were 20 when you started. And... You were saying you wondered if it was crazy to do this. A 20-year-old sitting down to write a 700-page novel is crazy, I would say. Yes, (laughs) it is. I had no idea of what kind of journey I was embarking on. uh, And I had this thought, actually like Cecilia has in the book, how hard can it really be? People write novels all the time. Is it so hard? What makes it hard? Maybe I should just do it, you know. And I I think you have to have this really high thoughts of yourself somehow to be able to do such a a crazy thing. And I had been a reader all my life. I really loved reading. So writing for me was like creating that kind of world which I found in novels, like to create a world and dwell in it. And uh, that was kind of where it started. I wanted to build this universe uh, and I had some ideas uh, that I wanted to explore. And uh, But for, for the first years of writing, it was like, you know, building a dollhouse almost. And you're like inventing all these background stories. I used to read a lot of fantasy when I was a kid. And, like, inventing the the world was a big part of the pleasure in writing. And so was it with collected works. 
And the world you write about is actually not that different from your own because it's set in Gothenburg and, and you grew up there. Now, the Cecilia, one of the principal characters, although she's more of a, an absence than a presence in the book, uh, grew up, though, in Ethiopia. Do you have any kind of West African background? Not myself, but my grandmother has lived there and her uh, some of my relatives uh, for a couple of years in the 70s. And she used to work there, so she... During my uh, childhood, she went to Ethiopia, to Addis Ababa, uh, three months every year. And I have been there with her as well. Uh, so I have a kind of a family background, but not personally. And uh, I remember actually when I I was like struggling with uh, Cecilia's history, like w- when I tried to, you know, understand who is this person, where does she come from? And um, what makes you, what makes you this kind of of being that she is? And for me, it was an epiphany realizing that well, obviously she did not grow up in Gothenburg. She's like an alien in Sweden, and she's an alien in her like you couldn't even call it native country. She she moves to Addis Ababa when she's a small child. And she lives there and it's like her childhood and she learns to speak Amharic and uh, it's a big loss for her actually uh, leaving the country. I'm glad nobody ever (laughs) asked me this before about uh, Ethiopia and Cecilia's childhood. But as you say, it's such a big part of her because she is... She has to learn to cope on her own from very early on, yeah. doesn't she? And when they come back to Sweden, she doesn't even move back in with the family. And I think that's the key to her character is that she is so self-contained. And in the end, what she just really needs is is the contents of her mind and a library. Yeah. Really. Uh, talking about how it's quite similar, this, there's some sort of parallels to, to your life. You're one of seven children, very musical. Tell, tell me about that musical background and how... That works with your writing? Actually, from when I was a child, I used to play a lot of music and I used to write and I used to draw. So I had this like urge of expressing myself. And I did from a very early age with the means that, that I had, you know. And my grandmother told me I was sitting by the piano and I had maybe like written something and I made some music to it and I illustrated it. And I wouldn't even call it artistic, but this kind of, you know, artistic, uh, square quotes, things were very close to play for me. It was like a way of playing. And uh, during my entire childhood, I played the piano and uh, eventually I, I started to play rock music and I formed a rock band with a play the electric guitar. And for many years, music was my like principal way of uh, expressing myself. And uh, it was really intertwined with writing. I wrote songs and I wrote a story about a rock band when I was a kid. It, so I, it came like from the same source. And uh, when I started uh, to write this book, I was about 20. And I, for an entire year, I was listening to almost nothing but Bruce Springsteen. And I had this idea. I wanted to write in a style that reminds of how Roy Bitton plays the piano, Roy Bitton in, in the E Street Band. Because being a pianist myself, I, I listened specifically to the piano. And there was, you know, some kind of atmosphere in it that I wanted to... Uh, I, I felt 
I felt some kind of aesthetic kinship to it. Uh, so That's I, so true because you've got the hook in there, you've got the chorus, you come back again yeah. and again to the interview that yes, Martin is doing. That's true. Just like a piece of music. And I always had this, uh, you know, sense of, you know, to keep up the beat and there, there, there is a certain rhythm in the in the style. And I think that Ines has captured it very well in the, the English translation. And um, so I always had this kind of... I found out that I uh, oftenly compare my writing process to like music, like having a chord or you know a melody, and uh, I can I can feel when it doesn't really you know when it stumbles mm, and when it mm. yeah. The author Lydia Sandgren speaking into Monaco's George and Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. For this week's edition of Monocle on Culture, we hear from an up-and-coming musician. Damir Khan grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh, writing songs and teaching himself to play instruments and produce music through YouTube videos. He released his debut EP in 2021, and he's gained a loyal following in his home country with recent sold-out shows. Damir now lives in Canada, where he is in his last year of university, juggling economics classes with songwriting, playing with his new band and preparing a full-length album. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant caught up with him to find out more. I remember one time in my high school in Bangladesh, like really, really early, I made this one song and they played it during our sports day when everyone was like on the field for sports day. And it was crazy. I saw a bunch of my friends and like people from other grades like dance to the song. And most of them didn't even know that I made that song. But, you know, seeing them dance to it was crazy. Like, you know, I realized that I have the power to make people dance and to make people feel something. And that was really cool. And that was when I was really young. And yeah, I got into it. I started uploading stuff. I started sending it to people. And eventually, you know, I got some leads and I started doing it professionally. And uh, here I am now. And I just came back from like a little tour we did in Dhaka in my hometown. How would you describe your musical style? Because I know that, you know, with songs like Bashpo Balo um, or Amarjan, there's this really fusion that I at least have never heard before in music. Could you talk a bit about that? I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's exactly what I'm going for. Like I started with some like indie, indie pop, indie rock stuff. But I feel like my heart definitely lies in advancing the Bangladeshi sound and finding a really distinct Bangladeshi sound. And the, you know... Wonderful thing about the situation I'm in is that Bangladesh is such a young country that, you know, we haven't had that much time to develop our distinct sound. Things are still so underdeveloped that, like, I can try things that have never been done before. And so songs like Bashabhalo, like Amarjan, and I'm working on some new stuff that's like, you know, Bangladeshi. And, like, I hope, like, for now it's fusion, but I'm trying to write stuff that's distinct, unique, and, you know, collected and salient and, you know like direct enough that it becomes its own genre. You know, I really want to modernize the Bangladeshi sound because there's so much wonderful stuff in our musical culture that has yet to be, I guess, like transformed into a modern sound. So that's really what I have my heart set for, you know? So like 
some of my stuff is indie rock, but I really want it to sound like this is like the newest sound from Bangladesh, you know, and I really want to wear that proudly that like this is a Bangladeshi sound. What are some ways that you want to do that? Is that with traditional instruments or particular styles of music? There are various Bangladeshi rhythms that are, you know, like quite similar to Indian rhythms, but like we have our own stuff. And, you know, I, my father is a drummer and um, they have some songs in my dad's band. They have some songs that are like very Bangladeshi songs, but my dad is playing it on a drum kit. Um, and, you know, I'm finding such like marvelous things about it because um, it's a really exciting thing once you like convert like an Indian subcontinental sound or South Asian sound that's usually done with percussions like tablas or dholes and stuff like that. And when you transform it into a drum kit, you get some really, really interesting results. And, you know, of course, the thing with the drum kit is that, you know, it's more transferable. I can go on tour with the drum kit. It's easier to find a drummer and stuff like that. So, you know, like, you know, I'm also finding things where it's like, you know, it's logistical concerns and stuff like that that informs the way I can make my music. Because, again, like now that I've done these string of live shows, I'm really, really, really fascinated by the live setting and putting on a really good live set. So, like, transferring some of these rhythms to, like, a drum set various melodic influences uh, obviously like singing in bangla and you know for amarjan is a great was a great teacher for me because amarjan is, pro is you know one of my most successful songs in bangladesh and people really like the fusion of it you know where it's like the verses are in english and the chorus is in bangla and i've been writing more songs like that you know and uh, you know i'm taking a page out of like the south korean book um, where like a lot of k-pop artists are like mixing um, you know their their language with uh, english uh, a lot of other artists, you know, in Latin American music, they do that a lot, you know, and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, it's been done before and I know it can work if you do it right. So I've been also working on that. But there's various things. And, you know, just by sh the sheer coincidence of the fact that, you know, like, again, we're a really young country and like we're still figuring what figuring out what makes us Bangladeshi. We're still kind of confused about what makes us Bangladeshi. It's really exciting and like novel experience to like, you know, yeah, try to like put a Bangladeshi melody or a rhythm or some prose or something like that in a more modern setting. That's sort of how I've been going at it. And when it comes to songwriting, do you find it easier to write in one language than another? Because I know your earlier songs were all in English. I'm more comfortable writing in English, almost mainly because like, I consume so much English music that that's been internalized in me that like I know all of the structures of English music of Western music and stuff like that but I find it very very exciting and very engaging and very meaningful to write in Bangla and Bangla is a very you know like our language is very sacred to us as Bangladeshis you know we're like one of the I think we're the only country in the history of the world to like fight for our independence primarily to, for like to speak our native language I find it technically easier to write in English because I have so many references, but I want to keep exploring both, you know? What do you have planned for the year ahead? For the next time I'm going to be in Bangladesh, we're going to have way bigger shows. We want to bring artists from all over the place, particularly when it comes to bringing Bangladeshi diaspora artists from all over the world. There are some brilliant Bengali artists from the UK, from the US, from all sorts of places. So doing that, but really like I'm working on a lot of new new music. I have sort of a distant intention that by the next time I'm in Bangladesh, I'll have an album ready. And I have a very clear 
distinct idea of what I want this album to sound like. And I have connections with all sorts of new musicians that can help me create this album. Uh, so hopefully by the next time in Bangladesh, we're putting together massive shows and I have an album to put together. But right now I've been writing like a new song every week. I'm a far better producer, so they're even sounding better. Within a few months, I hope to have a substantial body of work ready, a new body of work. But yeah, I mean, like, just life is like coming at me quick. I'm, a, I'm like, I'm about to graduate, but I'm, you know, I have a lot of um, exciting projects at hand. I'm hopefully gonna do a bunch of shows in Montreal before I go back to Bangladesh. I, I hope to blow everyone's socks off. Damir Khan there in that report by Naomi Shu Elegant. Our final highlight of the show comes from the latest edition of Food Neighbourhoods. This week we head to Melbourne. Ligon Street in Carlton offers as fine a selection of Italian cuisine as you'll find anywhere, very arguably including Italy. Our guide is Monaco's Andrew Müller. Melbourne is fond of advertising its cafe culture and the boasts are generally justifiable pretty much anywhere in the city you go. There is little dispute, however, about the location of the ground zero from which this easygoing sophistication radiates. It is Ligon Street in Carlton. Ligon Street looks, at first glance, like any or all of Melbourne's neighbourhood shopping precincts. Ligon Street is wide and tree-lined, and its footpaths are shaded by shopfront awnings. It's when you get close enough to read the signage that a recurring theme becomes apparent. Tiamo, Donini's, Il Gambero, Scopri, Brunetti... The Italians who came to Australia in the decades after World War II were not the first, but they comprised Australia's greatest wave of immigrants from Italy. Perhaps 400,000 people between 1945 and 1972. Many chose Melbourne, and many of those gravitated to Carlton, an agreeable suburb just north of the city centre. Ligon Street has since become one of those clusters where the quality is self-sustaining. A dud restaurant or cafe here of all places would not stay in business long. And the equally impressive quantity of Italian establishments on Ligon Street has the happy effect of keeping prices reasonable-ish. Even at a relatively upmarket spot like Scopri, nothing on the premium menu clears 40 Australian dollars, or about 25 euros. The newcomer to Ligon Street could do a lot worse than ease themselves along by grasping for the longest planted pillars of the strip. One old favourite, Toto's, which claimed to be Melbourne's first pizza joint, opened in 1961, was a widely mourned casualty of COVID-19 lockdowns, but plenty of what has always made Ligon Street great remains. Tiamo, of more than four decades service, is always a solid option. DOC operates two places on Ligon Street, a restaurant and a delicatessen. 
King and Godfrey at the intersection of Ligon and Faraday began life as a grocery store during the gold rushes of the 1870s. Owned by the Valmorbida family since the 1950s, the King and Godfrey precinct now houses, among much else, a spectacular food court, home to a Distazio pizza place, the Angostino wine bar, the K&G deli and a branch of the exemplary gelateria Peter Pipo. But for all that the great appeal of Ligon Street is the feeling, at least while you're eating, that you could be in Palermo or Naples, aspects of the decor of some establishments are distinctively Australian. It is very far from unusual in any of Melbourne's cafes and restaurants to see posters and other votives advertising the Australian rules football allegiance of the proprietors. On Ligon Street, the colours are much, much likelier than not to be the navy blue of Carlton, the club adopted by generations of Italians and whose playing ranks have featured over the years such names as Barassi, Catoggio, Bortolotto, Favola, Diulio, Camparelli and three generations of Silvanis. Ligon Street is always a good night, it's just maybe a bit better the night of a Carlton win. Monocles Andrew Muller there. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle Radio. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.